Hello and welcome. My name is Brian, and you're listening to Friends and Music with me, Brian Doherty, a podcast about all things music for those who are obsessed by it. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on this show, please feel free to get in touch. I encourage you to subscribe to my podcast on your chosen platform, and most of all, thank you for listening. My guest today is Marshall Tapo. Marshall Tapo is a professional bass player, arranger, producer, and educator in the New York City area. He has recorded and produced many original artists, created educational music, written film scores, and edited audio for television, radio, and the internet. When not involved in music, he can be found researching craft beers, one of my favorite subjects, from around the world. And I'm happy to report that I've personally joined Marshall on many of these craft beer research missions. And at this time, we still need more field research. In all seriousness, during the show, we hear about Marshall's long and sustained career in the music business as both a music educator and music professional, and what it's like to juggle tasks while constantly collaborating with others in the business. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Marshall. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Brian? Everything is pretty good. Marshall, would you mind introducing yourself, telling, telling us what it is that you do and a little bit about yourself? Not at all. Uh, I'm a musician here in the New York area. I grew up in Port Chester and I still live in Port Chester. I work around New York, Connecticut as a bass player. I'm also a producer, arranger, uh, and an educator. So that's quite a lot. That's a lot on your plate. You must be very busy. Yeah, I'm as busy as I could be and really as I want to be. Uh, there's a lot of work. And even nowadays with the pandemic and everything, I'm still keeping busy at home. So I think later in the conversation, I'd like to touch, uh, I'd like to hit upon your music education um, track. But just for us right now, how long have you been teaching? Uh, I started teaching in the mid-80s for a little bit, and then I, I stopped teaching in public schools to become a full-time musician. I got back into it in the early 90s, and I've been teaching ever since in public school. Very, very nice. Um, tell us about the early years. How did you, how, how did you get into music? What, how, are you getting, how did you get to the bass, or was it the bass at all? And what about your early influences? Uh, early on, I started in school in fourth grade playing the trumpet. I played that all through college. Uh, and then, I don't know, maybe when I was around 11 or 12, I just knew I wanted to play the bass. Don't ask me why. Uh, most people were saying, no, you know, play the guitar. Uh, but I picked up the bass and studied on my own. And then throughout, you know, high school, played both bass and trumpet as well as in college. But after college, I realized that I was more proficient and there were more opportunities for me as a bass player. And I've been playing ever since professionally. Why do you think your friends were trying to convince you not to go into bass? Um, I think it was was the practicality of it. I think you need a personality and a certain, uh, you know, outlook to play the bass. It isn't as exciting. I could tell you four great bass jokes, bass player jokes. Go ahead, give us about, give us at least one. <laughs> uh, they're all about bass solos, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, people enjoying bass solos. I, I, I'll think of one in a minute. Oh, um, wait, that's assuming that people do enjoy bass solos. <laughs> that, that's the point. Yeah, that's that's the joke of it. I'm just kidding. To, to all the bass players out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so that, no, I always was playing bass and early on I, I was able to do, you know, play in bands, but also accompany, you know, performers. I did theater from an early age playing bass. So, uh, that was another avenue to go. You had to read. You can't just, you know, sit in in a pit and and think like, Oh, I, I think this sounds good over these chord changes. 
So I've always played in theater. And as I was older, I was doing professional theater, playing in pits. So back, so back in the early days, you're practicing. And how are you making your first connections? Are you with a, a, a garage band on the street? Do you have friends who are also guitar players? And are you hosting jam sessions? T- tell us about that. Yeah, it, I think through my whole career, it's always been word of mouth. I'm not a big promoter, self-promoter. I don't have a, a huge you know, media presence or online presence nowadays. Early on, it was word of mouth who I knew. I, I hung out with a lot of musicians, played with people. Uh, when in school, people knew I played bass, I was, I was hired. And it was, everything really has been word of mouth. It's, and this is a, there's a great community in, in this area. Uh, so you just get to know people and, and, and you got to show up and do a good job. And, and that's basically how I got work. Yeah. Tell, uh, uh, can you elaborate uh, more on the mindset? So you, you just kind of mentioned that you have to have a, like a good work app, you know, work aptitude. So like, what, what does it take to get from the practice room to, you know, out into the field? There's so many aspects you need. You need to have discipline. You have to be able to, your ears have to be big. You have to listen to other people, uh, come prepared. Uh, Whether it is playing in a band, you know, knowing your part. If you're going to do something that, you know, is is written out, so to speak, like with a songwriter or with uh, a theater, you know, with a musical, you have to be able to read. Uh, one of my earliest gigs as a teenager, I was accompanying a woman who was a, a music teacher. We were doing a show and three songs into this, this rehearsal, she turns to me and gave me the best advice ever. She said, I think you're a little too loud. And so you have to be able, <laughs> you have to, be able to adapt. It's usually, to, what drummers, it's usually what drummers get. Right? <laughs> so... Uh, that's it. You know, just be ready. No, if you're playing jazz, which I've played a lot, you have to have a repertoire of songs uh, and or be able to follow and learn things very quickly, sometimes on the spot. I've worked with people who come, uh, you know, a, a horn player or a singer who needs to uh, sing a song that you have a chart of in another key. And you have to be able to quickly be able to transpose. So it's, it's all things like that. But mostly it's like have a great attitude and be professional and then show up and do the right thing. So as you're describing this, this is like, um, you know, what, yeah, you're describing an an excellent musician, the the traits of a great musician. Um, But how do you keep, how do you keep, at times, do you ever find yourself keeping your opinions to yourself? Are there, are there situations or maybe types of music that you're not, thrilled about yet you still have to bring it you know bring your a game oh absolutely Absolutely. so how does so how does that happen uh it could be anything from you know you you, music is is where you're playing with people who are so much better than you and maybe so much less better than you (laughs) and uh you, you you know when you're playing with amateurish people you you have to I try to encourage people. I just did actually a job with uh, a, a saxophone player and a, a guitarist. And it was, it was like a, a background music for something. And he brought basically a high school student mm-hmm. to play with us. And the kid was very, very green. And he knew songs, but you know he, he needed encouragement. And my job could have been one, gone, gone one of either ways. I could have been like, this kid doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, this is, this is killing me, blah, blah, blah. Or I just tried to be encouraging to the kid. Very good. This is okay. Now play from the top. Okay. Now let us do this. And afterwards the, the, the musician who hired me, he, you know, his, he was more grateful that I was helping the kid than how good I was playing or doing the, the right job. So you have those kind of things, or you work with people who are just not listening to each other. You have to, I always think just try to do the right thing doesn't have to be the best part, but just do the right thing. And being a bass player, I, I'm not trying to just shine and, and solo and, and things like that. 
So play play what is needed. So it sounds it this sounds to me like um like this youngster had somewhat of a mentor in you. Like you, you, you know, like don't you wish that um, from hearing you describe this, I'm wishing that during some of my first sessions and gigs, pe people were that gentle and kind with me as well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> because, yeah. because some of those, some of the early days were absolutely brutal. <laughs> absolutely. And, yep. um, but that's like a, that, that's a special mindset, I, I would say, like, because otherwise you're never going to get through your session. You're never going to come out with anything, you know? No, 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 no. Um, that's it. Yeah, that's no, it. I, I think, I think every time you do different situations, you learn. And I always look at it as like a learning, you know, whether I was playing with jazz musicians or, or a club day, or, you know, I've played with people that have, you know, left me in the dust and people who I feel like, uh, you know, or when I was younger, I'm thinking, how am I playing with these amateurs? But right. everything is a learning experience. We've talked a lot, you and I have talked a lot outside of this recording, a lot about music, different genres. Um, do you, t tell us about, tell us about, you know, your love of listening to music. What do you, you know, what did you check out? For instance, like one example that I, that, that I often give is like reading album jackets was huge for me. When I was like, my mom would drop me off at a record store in a strip mall near where I grew up. And I wouldn't even buy an album. I would just read the album jackets. It was like being in a library for me. So do you have any moments like that? Or maybe oh my God. Talk, talk about that. So absolutely. Go, go ahead. Absolutely. I, I'm going to start by saying as a, as a teacher, uh, I've taught thousands of students over the years and I have in my head, I would see a kid that I taught a year ago, maybe even a month ago, and I recognize the kid. I'm, I'm happy to see them, but I'm thinking, I don't remember this person's name. <laughs> Which is not and unusual, yet, me, could, me too. <laughs> and I could still tell you though, the engineer, the producer, who played tenor sax on an album that I bought 40 years ago. Right. So I'm, I'm very big into knowing production credits. I, I we, you, We've talked about this. I. I have a slew of documentaries, music documentaries that I've watched, music biographies that I've read. I'm, I'm very big into production. Uh, I used to sit you know, on the living room floor with albums in front of me, reading every word. I loved when CDs came out, other than the fact uh, that I couldn't read. The, you know, they, were, they were putting less and less notes in there. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and there used to actually, on some LPs, there used to be, you know, were they liner notes, like actual musings by somebody else about the music, right? Is that what it's called? Oh, yeah. When someone's writing. Yeah. So there used to be a lot of information. There was a lot of content on those album jackets. Yep. So yep. Tell, tell us more. So how did that influence your, did you, you know, are you, you know, did you seek out other projects that these people were working on? What, what did you do? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, starting with, you know, reading, Beatles records and and reading the names like George Martin and Jeff Emmerich, you know, what are these people doing? And then seeing their names pop up years later with other artists, I would absolutely uh, seek out d different producers, different sidemen. Uh, I could be sitting with people who don't know anything about jazz and we're listening to say, you know, a James Taylor song and I'm going, well, you know, that's, that's Michael Brecker playing here mm -hmm. and, uh, and following these people's careers, following a musician that started in one band, went out to another band. I, you know, I, I'm almost like a, a trivia nut with respect to that. And uh, there, there's some players that I just have totally respected their careers and, thought they've made great decisions and of course, great material as artists. And then some that I, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that they start, they're creative, they, they produce amazing things and then it just, it just stops or it goes away or they get commercial. Right. So. Um, you, t you talking about this makes me think of, for instance, the sax solo on Young Americans. Absolutely. 
David Sanborn. David Sanborn. How about, and I don't know the answer to this one. Who plays the sax solo to Urgent, Foreigner? Urgent. Oh, I don't know. Is it Ju- Junior Walker, maybe? Or, it could be, uh, yeah. But, but um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to stump you. It's just that I'm thinking of, as you're describing these musicians that you see in print on on one artist's album, maybe in a totally different genre, you you see the same name, right? You see the oh. same name on somebody else's record. Uh, it could be a blues record to yeah. a, a rock record or a jazz to fusion or whatever, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, later on, on my notes, I, I have that we can, I definitely want, want to talk about the documentaries that, that, you, that you've, um, I don't know, just maybe some, some that pop out to you, but, but in terms of, um, in terms of reading, reading the credits, like what are, what are some of the other people that you saw on album jackets that, that you would want, that would make you want to, or were there bass players, for instance, were there? Oh, absolutely. So, well, so like, of course, who are some of them? You know, early on, it was, it was the, the big names, the people who were parts of the band, you know, Paul McCartney and John Paul Jones, Bill Wyman, uh, you know, I, I really grew, learned from those people before I knew what I was learning. I was just emulating, absorbing their playing. Uh, I thought Bill Wyman was a perfect example of somebody who's not flashy and yet he was playing the right part. Uh, I, I played with a, a drummer years later in a club day band. And after we played a set and, and you know, we must have just winged it through the song Satisfaction. And he grabbed me and goes, you know, I, he goes, you played the right part on Satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Most bass players play like the guitar lick. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I'm saying, because I really absorbed what those players did, the simple parts, but the right part. And that has always been, you know, my guide into how I make decision. You know, everybody could try to emulate Jocko, but there's only one Jocko. Right. And, he wouldn't sound good on 90% of the music that most people listen to. So, uh, but it was the other players, like uh, the, the guy who used to play with Joe Cocker. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, he also played on like this, the soundtrack for Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay. Uh, you know, he, here's a guy that he wasn't a household name. And yet I loved his playing. And... Uh, you know, guys like that. And then years later, discovering, you know, Anthony Jackson and, and, and players like Will Lee and people that I kept seeing popping up on not just jazz or fusion albums, but on, on pop albums and on like top 40 stuff. Uh, I could, we could spend a whole nother podcast talking about how many things Steve Gadd has played on. Oh, yeah. That yeah. I just, you know, little, you know, dopey pop tunes that he just makes a, make a signature sound. I, I love the def definitely, and I love that notion of seeking out the musician who's not a household name, because maybe later on we discovered that there was actually a studio, like a studio scene with like a certain group of musicians that would reappear, absolutely right. The 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 the, the Motown, the Muscle Shoals, the Wrecking Crew, all those growing up, we didn't know any of those names per se, but they're the sound of so many things that we've heard. So as you're listening as a youngster or when, when you're learning out, when you're starting out le- learning to play bass, what are you thinking these bands are, are, are you like imagine, what did you think you'd be doing with, with, with music? Would you be, would you be in oh. one of these bands? Would you be, you know? Yeah, no, the, 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 there's the, of course the part of you as a youngster, you think you're going to be in Led Zeppelin. Oh yeah. Or you, you think you're going to be a band where each individual person is revered. And I really thought at an early age, I, I should say, you know, in my late teens and into college, I really wanted to be a session player. I just thought that would be so great. Play in a studio, whether it's a, a singer songwriter or a band or a jingle or a movie soundtrack. That was what was, what was so exciting to me. And I really, I was gearing to try to do that. I don't know how mm-hmm. I was going to do that when I was 19 or 20, but that was, that was really my goal. I did not have to be on a stage or 
you know, I, I, I wanted the tour only with respect to travel. There's something, uh, I, there's, <clears throat> there's something, you know, like if you can, if you could ever be one, like a great session player, then, you, then you've kind of earned your stripes amongst your peers and colleagues, right? You absolutely. And, and like you earned it. You have to have that combination of being, a, to adapt to the situation. You have to be skillful enough to read, to, to play with what is ever needed, to not overplay, to play in tune, to have great time. I really thought that was how I wanted to go and, and I would have still done it. But of course, through the 80s and 90s, that, that scene was just drying up. I was fortunate enough to be able to play some sessions. I played on some commercials uh, that went, you know, there were national commercials. I played on some soundtracks, but it, it wasn't like the phone was ringing all the time. I was right. very lucky to have both people in advertising that knew me and other musicians that were connected to some, you know, well-known producers that referred me. So each time I felt very lucky Every time I walked into the studio, I kept thinking, this is what I want to do. I could do this 365 yeah. a year. But of course, there isn't that, you know, there isn't that industry anymore with yeah. everybody having home studios and things. But it, it was such a, a path I was following. When I was just getting excited about music when I was like 10 or 11, I envisioned all these bands like living in a house together. Yeah. Like, if you... <laughs> you're the Rolling Stones. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, they all live in a house together and they all just go go downstairs and rehearse. <laughs> well, well, you have to watch now the, the documentary about the band. Uh, it's okay. exactly that. <laughs> well, did they live in the Big Pink? <laughs> they lived in Big Pink. <laughs> yeah. All but like one of them. But except, yeah, this is my little, you know, my childhood fantasy, but I guess some bands actually did it, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the so Grateful Dead. So let's let's go ahead. Let, let's use that as the as a moment to transition into some of the documentaries because um, this is a. I feel like I, I I mean I've probably only watched fifty percent of what you have watched and but the Muscle Shoals one really struck me and what are some other document or maybe even that one what 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 the Muscle Shoals one. I, if, if we were to give, you know, 10 second reviews of each one, that was the one that totally, uh, see the Motown one was like, oh, these are unknown musicians that played on every Motown hit and they had a certain style, which was the Motown sound. The Muscle Shoals one uh, was these, you know, Southern, you know, guys who were just in this studio who played on everything from rock albums to R&B albums. And growing up, one of, you know, my favorite songs was the Staples singers, I'll Take You There. Oh, yeah, that's great. And, you know, you, you, I heard that song hundreds of times, picturing what I thought the Staples singers band might have looked like. And then you see these guys in Muscle Shoals doing that sound. And- uh, It's not, you know, it's not so what you it, pictured. It's exactly. And, and it was all feel, which is, that's why I love that one. The, the other doc about the wrecking crew was, was kind of the same genre. You know, you don't know who these guys are, but that was more like a, a you know, the, the sound of the beach boys and the mamas and the papas and yeah. even Frank Sinatra. I felt it, that it was interesting, but the muscle shoals one kind of blew me away in, I, in another way. I felt that the wrecking crew one just didn't have enough footage. There wasn't enough available footage to right. just for, you know visually support all of, I mean it was a, it was a great movie um but I the Muscle Shoals one I mean was really kind of humbling I mean because I, I I guess to follow up on on what on what you're saying like these these guys did not set out to conquer the conquer the music world right these guys no. these guys um these these guys just happened happened into this world of, you know, make, making records, right? Yeah. And yep. um, and every time I listen to Paul Simon's Kodachrome, I'm always exactly I'm always humbled that there's an odd measure in the ver in the first verse. Yeah. And I, and I just think like, how was this where they was the band following? 
in other words, did the did Paul realize that he was writing in an odd measure, or was he just singing his song and the band's transcribing? Oh, uh, you know, with, what do you, what I, do you think about that? I, I think it was the second part. I think it was that he just felt it. There are many musicians like that uh, that just felt these, you know, and had extra measures or less measures. You know, they just were playing what they felt. Right. And and this, you know, that's the the these are the guys who played with Aretha. And, and the staple singers and Paul yeah. Simon goes into the studio. He's like, Oh, I want the guys to play with Aretha, not you guys. <laughs> so, uh, absolutely. They, they were, their feel was just amazing. There's, um, you know, and then there are other documentaries, you know, like uh, 20 feet from stardom. That I haven't, same, I've watched a little bit of that. Not, not too much, not, not too much of that. How, how is that one? It's great. It's basically just about the, the, the people who were standing right behind the major stars and, and their background singers. Very interesting. Really, really good stuff. Recently, you, um, you sent me, what, what was the Ruddles movie? <laughs> all, all you, all need, you is need is cash. Is cash. <laughs> <laughs> so tell, tell, can you tell, cause may, maybe we talk a little bit about the Beatles. Cause you're, you're very, I would say that you're very knowledgeable about, about the Beatles. And so tell us a little bit about this movie and maybe a little bit about the Ruddles for, for people, assuming that some people listening don't know this, you know, the association. Yeah, well, I was hugely influenced by the Beatles from a very early age. I, I followed them, had every album. I, would, I was around when they were together. So uh, I was just huge into them. As I got older in my teenage years, like anyone, you move on. They're always in the back of your mind, but you know, you moved on to more sophisticated things. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, are they going to get back together? Ah, eh, whatever. Yep. Uh, you just, I just moved on, and then I remember much later revisiting it and still going. And this is just great music. Uh, right. From the, they were not the legends they were in the early '80s that they are now. I mean, it's, it's just become this huge thing. But anyway, back to the Ruddles, their circles of, you know, in their careers, they, they crisscrossed with so many people. And one camp that they crossed with was the Monty Python people, who was also a huge part of my life <laughs> and influence. I remember, we, we being so, I remember being so difficult to get Monty Python. It was before Cable. So we had to pick it up like on like regular TV or whatever, yeah, no. you know, bunny ear antennas. And yeah, no, it was some, on Sunday nights. Sunday, some Sunday nights you could not get it on channel 13. Right. No, no, I, I lived for that. I had their albums right up there with every other album and just, just brilliant. So the Ruddles was uh, like the creation of the, the guy in Monty Python, Neil Innes, who was their kind of music person came up with, I think it started as a sketch on a ladder Monty Python show. Mm -hmm. And they just did like a one scene, like, you know, just a spoof of the Beatles. And that turned into a whole, I think it was just a one hour movie. And that movie was made both with the Beatles and like the Saturday Night Live people. Uh -huh. So uh, it, it was just, they, from me, if you just took that movie and talked about just the music, they had it down. They just totally nailed it. And at the same time, we're jabbing and making fun of it. it it's, but it's oh, brilliant. It's, it's uh, agreed. It's, it's so good that you can't even call it copy music. I mean, if you were just copying by, I mean, it's like, it's like he, he, Neil Innes got the essence he uh, totally got the song essence. and the lyric. I mean, it's so difficult. How did he do it? He, he it's, it's, it's just great parody. Uh, he just was able to get the essence of all the eras. And the, and the Beatles, again, was a band who was together. You know, they were together for, you know, not even 10 years. Right. You can't compare 1963 to 1969. They were just right. so different. I don't know other bands. And we, we are now listening to the bands that have been together 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they still haven't changed the way the Beatles did. And, and the Ruddles totally absorbed that and really got it, got yeah. it down. Um, what's the parody they do on Get Back? And, 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 the, and the video is yeah. great. 
get up and go. <laughs> it's just great. Yeah. That video is great. And also, like, I don't know. I don't know if you experienced this, but I, you know, you might recommend something and I'll say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. And then once you check it out or once I check it out, I realize where have I been? You know, I've, <sighs> I've, I've missed this entire, you know, the entire decade of 1968 in whatever genre and meanwhile everybody else has been listening to this right so i came to the ruddles later like i i knew that todd rundgren had a somewhat of a parody album with utopia to face the music yes which was pretty good but the ruddles there's no comparison and in my opinion the the ruddles are amazing totally and i remember seeing it on television so basically (laughs) in in the days before DVR and VCR, I saw it on TV, and then I probably didn't see it again for another 10 years. So. Yeah, I don't know who the drummer was in, in the Ruddles, but amazing. Just it, it was, uh, was amazing. It Ricky Fittar. Was it? Oh, yeah. He's yeah. played drums on a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, he's speak, another guy. Speaking of session drummers, yeah. He's, yeah. oh my God, he's, was, is he that old? I mean, um, was he the original drummer of the Ruddles? I believe so. Okay. The, the, the Ruddles was like 77. Okay. So. Um, so great, great stuff. Why don't we, since we're talking about the Beatles, you, I, how would you describe what you do with Dennis Elsis? And what, you, you want to describe who he is for, for people listening? Sure. Uh, Dennis is a, well, was a, a, DJ on WNEW, which for anyone who wasn't in the New York area or is young, WNEW was like the big rock music station in New York City before it was called Classic Rock. And Dennis uh, was a DJ there. He was the music director uh, or program director, I'm sorry, or music director, I'll find out. Uh, and he was able to, through the, through the station, interview everybody that came through town. His list of interviews is like the who's who of major music people in the 70s and the 80s. And for the last 20 years, he's been on WFUV at Fordham University Mm -hmm. and playing a combination of those artists and the new people like, you know, the Lombello and Mumford and Sons, those kind of people, and still interviewing the, the next generation, Elvis Costello and, and, and Patti Smith and people like that. Um, and so he and I met through a mutual friend about 10 years ago, and he was looking for someone to edit both audio of, of his archives and also video for a, a multimedia presentation that he does. So I kind of filled that role because I had learned how to do audio editing in studios and I video editing, I kind of just taught myself and was able to do what he needed. So we, uh, we worked together and I had, I mean, I have thousands of hours, it seems of these great interviews. Can I, can I, can I ask you when you work for, I'm assuming WNEW was owned by a huge corporation. I I think it was owned by Metro media. Oh yes. Right. Yeah. Channel five. Metro Media, but yeah. um, do you own your material, or, or do you have to, or, or is it something you set out in your he, contract? Or he, I believe that he owns the audio. So if he is interviewing Elton John, he has the right to own that audio. Now, if Very he cool. was to broadcast that Elton John interview and play a song obviously the, the royalties of the song would be paid, I guess, by the station to the artist. Right. But he owns the interviews. And his interviews um, ha- have been played in, in, in documentaries and things like that. Uh, so, but he owns it. Right. I don't know if he could, he could sell it, so to speak, but he definitely uh, has the rights to it. So it sounds to me like you're, you know, in a sense, like you're a curator. You're for his work, for his, you know, you're, and you're um, helping him present, right? Yeah. You, you help him present in lectures and for this is the audio and the visual, mm-hmm. the, this is the content, right? And, right, um, exactly. So I, I've helped him, you know, put together these pieces 
And when he does his, his live presentation, he, he, you know, gets in front of the audience and, and, you know, tells a story about, and this is what happened in 1969, and then I'll queue up uh, the video portion of it. You know, I'll cue the tech people, turn the lights down, and the right. audience watches a, a piece that we've put together. And then when that ends, he comes up and says the next thing. And then in 1972, uh, this person came to the studio and I had a chance to sit down with them. And, and this right. is what it sounds like. So it's, it's both audio and it's visual. Um, and, and, he had done and, some- and, not, and, and I just want to point out that it, it sounds like there's, you know, you're directing in a sense live, but also you, you're the one who's, who's done all the editing and piecing, like t- telling the story beforehand with, you know, you're, you're, you've gone through the interview or the visual to edit and yeah, to help create he a will, compelling uh, story. Yep. Yep. He, well, he, he has the material and, mm-hmm. and we, I listen. So for example, say if he interviews somebody for 45 minutes, we need to get the essence of it down to six or seven minutes. Right. And then he and I will both pick the visuals and um, he's, you know, we're constantly editing things and, you know, he just had his 20th anniversary for WFUV and oh we edited a whole bunch of stuff and some segments were six minutes, some segments were 15 minutes. So we edited a Roger Daltrey piece and it ended up being 15 minutes long. And, you know, unfortunately he's like thinking, oh, we have to edit this down. And I'm sitting here at home going, I don't know. I, I listened for 15 minutes. I wasn't bored. It was a great, right. you know, great interview. Right. So th- those are the, 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 you know, the decisions that are being made, um, taking out certain stories, keeping a flow to it. He right. has just really great interviews. So it sounds, it, it brings up a point that I think no matter what we do in the music business or in a- anything creative, you never work in a vacuum. You're always working with someone else. You always Absolutely. need someone to partner with. Absolutely. No, no, there'll be times when he'll, he'll, I'll send him something. He'll say, no, no, I don't really, I don't think the, the, this decision, this doesn't sound right here. And I'll say, well, this is the reason why I did it. I like the cadence of this, or I, right. I thought this point was good. And then he'll re-listen and say, oh, no, no, I, you know, I trust your judgment. Or, right. And there are times when, 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 whether it's a songwriter or, or Dennis or anyone, they're like, no, I, I don't agree with this. And my role is to say, I'm doing what you need. You know, you're the person who has to like it in the end. Right. Right. So you're, so just in listening to our conversation now brings up a couple things. One is that we haven't yet spoken about music education. And the other is that we just assumed that because you're a musician, you had this technical ability to, you know, to navigate the, the world of the world of, um, digital media. So right. what do you want to talk about first? How, maybe, how did you learn how to do this editing stuff and recording? And then we can go into music education or? I think, it, yeah, I think it goes, let's start, let's start, start with tech. I think it goes back to that, you know, I wanted to be a session musician. I, you know, a kid in the candy store every time I went into a recording studio and through different artists and different people I've worked with, I was able to go from, say, studios like Electric Ladyland and, and Power Station, where I, that was just to me like going to, you know, for Graceland for some people. Right, right. It was, I was, I was jumping out of my skin going there. And then to smaller studios, the ones around uh, Westchester, two people's studios in, in their houses. Right. And every time I was there, I just wanted to concentrate on the music part my performance and as well what is going on behind this the board tape everything else and i just learned from there in um, in the 80s i think i got an atari computer if you remember those Mm -hmm. and i learned how to program and do midi and arrange uh i also had like a a sequencer and i just learned how to do that when digital um recording came out on my first Mac, I just emerged, immersed myself in, in how to record, you know, how to record, how to learn. I, I did terrible things. I, I did things I'm very proud of. Did I learned that, how to do that for a music teacher. Uh, I was trying to incorporate this into my teaching. Right. But uh, 
it was a lot of reading. Uh, and along the way, I learned how to also edit video. And I was doing this at school as well. And I, I had a principal who said, oh, how do you know how to do all this stuff? You know, did you get a degree in this? And I'm thinking, no, I just <laughs> learned how to do it. I want to I wanted just pause right here because um, it seems so natural. This was a natural add-on to playing bass. You know, do you, do you think, did you ever think about it or was it, just something that okay yeah of course I need to I need to communicate with my instrument therefore I will learn all about technology or do you think some of have you ever seen colleagues that are like I I don't ever want to record because I just want to play yeah no absolutely yeah. and they're 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 musicians that we know that just all they want to do is play they don't want to, I've had friends of mine who are great musicians come to my house and they're just like look you you press the buttons you record you arrange you add this. I just want to come and play. And, and I don't uh, disrespect them for that. I, I, there's, a, there's a part of, uh, everything is time consuming. So there's a part of when I'm learning how to record and learning how to, and doing the recording, I'm not playing my bass just as a performer. So, but it's, it's all the, the parts of me as a musician. I, I, I never wanted to just sit here and press record and have people play. Right. I always wanted to get involved, add parts, harmonies, arrangements. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's just part of what I am. I knew from an early age that I was not going to totally be a performer and totally support myself only playing the bass. Right. I didn't think it was practical. I, um, <clears throat> no, that, that's a great, that's a great story. I, I was kind of the opposite because I, I resisted technology for a long time, excuse me. <clears throat> and, um, I guess fairly recently it's become so user-friendly, you know, to use GarageBand oh, and there's open source programs and you can plug in a mic and it works or plug in your keyboard controller and everything works now. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, wasn't always the case, you know, you had I, I wish software. I was 16 now. Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy. It's exhaust. It's exhaust. It's exhaustive. Uh, the, 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 the the vari the variations you can get you know on guitar amps and microphone sounds and you know I I remember in the very early eighties I had a reel to reel and a cassette deck and I recorded multi track by recording something on one deck playing it to the other while mm -hmm. I was playing something else and just bouncing back and forth you know it didn't sound great but I I could have spent hours doing that yeah. That's then that's I got great. Do you remember one of those? <laughs> no, I, I just I, I do remember hearing about them. What what are they? It, it was a, a cassette, it was a, a four-track. Oh, I had recorder. one. A, I had a Marantz. Yeah. I had a Marantz Porta Studio. Yeah. You want you want to explain those? How, how how you turn the tape or or did you turn the tape? Yeah, it, it, the, it was a cassette-based four-track. And you were able to record four tracks and then bounce things down. It was great for recording demos. You really couldn't record album quality stuff, but boy, to, to, to learn about how parts work, if you're playing them by, you know. I, I remember, I think I was like nine or 10 and I was at a cousin's house and they're holding up the, the, when Paul McCartney did his first uh, solo album. Mm -hmm. And me being a big Beatles fan, I was like, oh, I wonder what this is about. And, and my cousin was like, and he plays everything on it. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, 10 years old, I'm thinking, well, how is that possible? And yeah. from there on, mm -hmm. you know, that whole concept of being able to overdub just, you know, that's all I was thinking about how to do how studio technique. Mm -hmm. I just, um, I could talk about it forever. My, my, my first um, introduction to that concept was seeing the inside of the something, anything, album double yes. double and just seeing Todd Rundgren like in a in a room with wires cables yep. drums keyboards like what yep. is all this stuff like you know why, why do you need all these cables and you know so right and then I think he played I think he played everything on three sides of that album and then I think so yeah. played on Stevie one. Wonder was the same thing you know yeah Stevie Wonder yeah. is one of my favorite drummers well actually wait funny you say that because we could talk about I would love to talk about some 
some drummers that are great that aren't really known as drummers. Can can you yeah. think of any more? Uh, Stevie, Paul McCartney. Paul, yeah. Uh, uh, ooh, not drummers. Well, or, again, or, uh, or not drum heroes, let's say, you know. Or, you, know, you, know you know the joke about, uh, not the joke, the, the line about the Beatles where a, a, an interviewer asked John Lennon if he thinks Ringo is the best drummer in the world. And John says, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. <laughs> Paul, was, Paul was a pretty, pretty good drummer. Um, yeah. I, I definitely think of LaVon Helm as, because I don't think he was yep. primarily a drummer. I think he was a mandolin. I think he was a string player or a vocalist first. I, okay. I, he, again, you got to watch the new band documentary. Uh, okay. He, he was the drummer at, at like as, when he was 19 with Ronnie Hawkins. Okay. And they actually have footage of him. It's, it's amazing. Okay, I got a, what's the name of that documentary? All right, One, Once Were Brothers. Okay. Um, some other drummer, I, I always cite Stevie Wonder as being, as being an awesome drummer. Um, yep. But maybe it's that the drummers who sing or who aren't really associated with, you know, always associated as being like amazing drummers. But Don right. Henley is in that list. Like Don yep. Henley, I think he's an amazing drummer. He's so good. You, you almost don't notice him. And his singing is crazy good too yes so. yeah him and Levon. yeah absolutely you, you can't go wrong so now let's let's talk about some music education so it's so i'm putting together that you've spent some time in the trenches so to speak playing music and you've gotten into music education so what what happens I, and can you balance both yeah no i mean before college i knew i wanted to be a musician i went to school and you know uh I was kind of steered towards music education. I spent my years in these like teaching courses thinking I'm never going to do this. And I graduated. How, you know, how can I make some money? So I, I substituted. I was able to uh, get a teaching job very early. I think after one year out of school and I taught for a few years and while I was teaching, then my music career was getting busier. And I remember just thinking, you know, I don't want to be teaching. I want to go out and do this. So I, I took some time away from teaching, not knowing if I'd go back, went on the road, was able to do, you know, European tour and things like that, play music all the time. I did that for a bunch of years. And at one point, I just saw a job for a, a, a leave replacement teacher for music. And I'm thinking, let, let me apply for this. You know, I couldn't mm -hmm. rely on gigs as much then. I got the job. I thought I'm just going to do this for a couple months, and <laughs> that led into well, next year, and I've been there ever since. And the the stability is is great. You you have to have a great attitude. If I sat there for the last you know 25 years thinking, oh, I could have been this better, you know, it's right. not the way to do it. Uh, I put a lot of energy into my program. I had great mentors, and. Uh, I, I, I created a program. You and I have spoken about, you know, different aspects of teaching. Mm -hmm. I, I want the, my students to have a, have a positive uh, experience in music. Basically. I, I was just going to ask you, there's, you know, music is one of those, you know, school subjects that's very easy to talk about. Like, oh, music and art are so important to, mm -hmm. to, to students. Um, but do you, as it as an experienced teacher, do you really find that even though people say it, do they really value it as much as they say it? And also, how does it how does it fit into the overall landscape? Or you know, do do music teachers get pushed aside when when the going gets rough and test scores are important or money? Oh, tight? absolutely. So, absolutely. so tell us more about what you what, how you feel about that. Well, it, it's the, it's the equivalent of of you know how people view music. Is it something that matters to you, or is it something that oh? Let's put the music, let's put the radio on when we're in the car. Right. Or, uh, you know, the, 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 what some teachers feel like is music is, kids, it's your break from doing math. And it's, uh, it's my coffee break. Right. And, or they'll drop off the kids to my room like, okay, you know, have a good time or go run around or sing a little. And it's not valued. I, I can't speak that way for every teacher. There are many teachers right. who value what I do. But I look at it as like, this is a part of your 
education and a part of your life. I want music to matter to the students. Right. I don't, I don't need all my students to go to Juilliard or become musicians, but they do have to value what music is. That could be, would you, would you agree that that's a tough sell if the teacher is dropping them off and going, okay, uh, you know, we'll continue our math later. Now, now go jump around and, you know, sing a little bit, you know. That's exactly, yeah, how people think. And, and to, to an extent. Uh, uh, you can it, do that. It, it's fine, but yeah. again, but, but when I've been successful and, you know, when the, it's just how you present yourself. I present myself that everything I say to the students is important. Right. And, and, and it's valuable. Not, not that I'm saying I'm perfect, but I'm saying, you know, I'll give an example. If I teach, you know, patriotic music, I'm not really that patriotic, but I want them to feel that this is why this is important. Right. Period. Right. Are there, do you have any other takeaways? Like what are the big takeaways about music education? Like, or what direction are we going in? Or what can we be doing better well, I, I think, you know, there's part of what we do in both mostly instrumental music, but also in general music, vocal music, that is somewhat archaic. We're still, you know, we're still teaching in a model that is maybe 100 years old, right. so to speak. Um, I try to add as much technology to my, my teaching as possible, but not that everything they need to do is on a computer. There's a right. lot of there's a lot of value to being in a room with no technology and making music, whether you're playing instruments or singing right. and listening is a, is a huge part of it. Is music education being valued? Of course not. You know, we are, it's getting cut left and right. Our pro I'm in a very affluent uh, district and they cut music time of a few years ago when there were schedule changes. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they'll ever, totally remove music but it, we, we have to we have to you know be on top of it i i almost see it as like um you know at music teachers district policy will often you know dictate that music music should be you know elementary should feed into middle school music middle yep. school band and stage band should feed into high school where there's a marching band or orchestra and then these yep. should, those kids should be ready for college. And then at the end of college, what happens? It's like, you should be ready for the professional landscape, right? right? And then, so now that we're in the professional landscape and we peer back into music education, I often see a lot of what's going on as not preparing, <laughs> not preparing students for the pipeline. It's like, they've, they've taken a different path at some, but they, they made a left turn at some point, you know? Right. <laughs> And not absolutely. It's, so it's almost our job as like musicians and music teachers to kind of put it all together. Like, I can't. Maybe I'm not describing it in, well enough. But no, you're describing it very well. It, it's that's again. I keep looking at my job is whether you're five or ten or eighteen. The job is to understand the value of music, why it's right. so important, and not just performing music, making right. good decisions about. You know, so you're, you're not, you know, it's, it's like food. Do you, do you want people to eat McDonald's every day? I'm not right. putting McDonald's down, but right. you need value. You need nutrition. And in music, it's the same thing. Right. Um, would you believe that we've almost gone an hour? I, I know. No. We, we need another one just for uh, yeah. documentaries on the road. <laughs> I know. I was going to ask you just quickly, and then, and then we'll, and then we'll begin to ramp, ramp down. I was going to ask you about, how do you feel? Because a good a good topic to to touch upon would be the, the live music scene. How how is it changed? I mean, you know, when I can remember weekends where I you know I played like six gigs in a weekend, or like years would Absolutely. go by that I played like three hundred gigs, yeah. and that and that wasn't with a band. That was that was wasn't with one band. That was yeah. with all different people. So can you? Just I, maybe in like I, three minutes I, I was or in so. The same shoes as you. My when I was working in bands and is before I got. Oh, actually, it was even when I was teaching. My calendar. The issue with my calendar wasn't. Oh, I'm wondering if I'm working on this day. 
my issue was I'm working every weekend and most weeks and I have to go to my cousin's wedding. I better look now for a sub, <laughs> you know, that, so really the issue for many years for me wasn't, you know, are we going to work? It was, I, I'm, I'm definitely working or, or two or three calls got come in for the same day. Oh yeah. So that has yeah. changed drastically. Th- those days, so to speak, don't happen anymore. So it's almost a shame that, uh, I mean, because when, when we look back, I don't really see any younger, I don't know, the, the, you know, in my, in my town, when it's summer concert series and it's like a classic rock band, the, the people playing on the, on the gazebo are, aren't mm-hmm. youngsters. So I'm not seeing evidence that younger people have this, this that they're not jazzed about getting together, playing music. What do you, what do you think of that? I, I, think, I think there's two schools of thoughts technology plays into it you know you have people who are not putting instruments into their hands and physically learning how to play them when you have garage band or you're a dj and and then there are the other you know young people who are immersing themselves in say the almond brothers and bands right. like that and these jam bands and they're playing all the time but there's no there's not many venues for them to play to their age you know that age group right yeah, there's so. not, um, we had clubs to play, you know, f- on a Tuesday night at eight o'clock yep. for no money, just to at least play to our audience, right? Absolutely. No, I remember playing in clubs and on a break, walking around the corner to see friends of mine play in other bands. Right. Now you're lucky if there's one club in, in each town or city. Yes, I know. So. Yeah. Um, you know what? We're going we're gonna to wrap it up here the your your story is fascinating and 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 very very interesting and um is there any way that anybody anybody can get in touch with you can or um how, how do we get in touch with you if we need are, are you present on well, social media or i'm on so i'm on or, I'm on facebook i'm on linkedin although i don't know how to use it um oh, and, and, I, and it's I'll such a good professional idea. resource yeah um <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding i I, I remember when, what was that, uh, MySpace? When that, remember that? <laughs> yeah, of course and I it do. Came out, I was friends with Tom. Like, you know, clicking on people's MySpace <laughs> and going, oh, gee, I need one of these. <laughs> Never doing it. So. No, it's just, it's not, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but if anybody were interested in finding maybe more, more, uh, more out more about your projects, your work, you know, yeah, they I would just do a search for you. Look for search for me on on Facebook or my email address. I could give you. I I love to collaborate with any people. I'm doing a, a project right now with some singer songwriters, and it was great. We we did this all through email and Dropbox through the past couple months. So so I'm I'll, open. I'll tell you what. So if so, Marshall, you're definitely open to hearing from people who are maybe interested in collaborating or, or, or wanting to know more. And if there's, if there's a specific link that you want me to share, I'll put it uh, in the description yeah. box for this. So definitely, thank so you. everybody can, you know, find it there. If you're, if you're interested, well, thank you so much, Marshall. This was great. This was thank a, you. Good talk. It was a blast talking to you. I was honored that you asked me. My pleasure. And we'll do, we'll do part two one time with, Oh wait, we didn't, we didn't even talk about beer. I was thinking the same thing. So beer going to put beer and documentaries and other yep. stuff on on the part two Definitely. anyway marshall thank you and i look for i look forward to part two great thank you brian all right take care you too well folks we're going to leave it there for today i hope you enjoyed the show and please remember to subscribe and share this podcast you've been listening to friends and music with me brian doherty today's intro and outro music are provided by my band treat and release which is available on all streaming services. To learn more about me and my work, I can be found on all social media platforms or by visiting my website, briandohertydrummer.blogspot.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. My mechanic said there's no way.